It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now here's Eric Lutie. Boy, today's truth, for those of you that have been around Ellerslie, uh, you'll recognize it without any arm twisting. Uh, Our message today is called The Invisible Hand, and that's a... Uh, just a, a very key and crucial foundational truth in Christian development. On Mondays and Wednesdays, I'm going through something called the Glossary of the Gospel, and it's basically a primer for a new believer. So a new believer is coming into the kingdom of heaven, and it's like, how do you do this thing? What is important? What matters? How do you root and ground uh, in the truth of Jesus Christ? And so that's what I'm going through. I'm going through the key terms, the key concepts that make up the basics of Christianity. But for those older believers, this is a tremendous tool to understand how to disciple because these are the basics of discipleship. So if someone were to go through Ellerslie training, you could actually go through it with a different lens. Most people don't do this because when they first arrive, they're so needful of foundational truths themselves that they're not able to see globally what's taking place. But when you've been discipled, you actually know how to disciple. You just don't know you know how to disciple because it's the same process. There's a process, it's a precept upon precept concept where if you lay the right foundation stones, then you can build upon them. And so that's sort of what this process has been. And uh, so we're pretty far into it. I don't remember which one this is, if this is the 11th uh, one in the series So for those of you that are just now joining in on our podcast, you can actually go back and get all of these. But uh, this one's called The Invisible Hand. Uh, Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that our hearts, our minds would be uh, alerted, awakened, sensitive, uh, sharpened unto your purposes, that we would see, that we would grasp, that we would take hold of this idea of grace. Lord, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you've given to us. And I pray that the magnificence of it would shine forth afresh in our hearts. Amen. So I gave away just in my prayer what this is really on today, a key term. And oftentimes I'll have a whole list of key terms that we're going to go through. But in this one, this is so critical, uh, grace. And uh, throughout the process of this series, you know, I've hinted at it, I've done various things, because it's sort of hard to talk about Christianity without uh, mentioning it at some level, but this is more of a focus uh, time just on this, this term. And for those of you that have heard me teach on this in the past, this is a very thin version of the message. Uh, I don't know which one would be my favorite message on grace over the years, but the power to do it uh, is... Uh, probably the message I'm most known for in regards to grace. So if you'd like to look that up, that could be a good help if you want to go deeper with this. Uh, So grace. The idea of grace, uh, and I see that we have Grace McConaughey uh, back there. So what does it feel like, grace, to have your name just like splattered on a screen all the time like this? It's weird when I pray for grace. I'm like, God, give grace grace. Uh, it's like a strange thought. I mean, is it just, does it just come? If you name your child Grace, does she just have grace all the time? And that could be a good strategy because then we just name everyone Grace. It's like, what's your name, Grace? Uh, well, you're a man. I know, but my parents were saying it could be really helpful. So uh, <clears throat> the distortion of grace. 
So when I say the word grace, it's weird, but there's a lot of misconceptions. And if there's certain terms that the devil goes after, it's because they're significant terms. So you'll notice that the devil will spend most of his time attempting to destroy and pervert and twist the most central and most salient truths in the kingdom of heaven. So faith is one of his big target points. Uh, Love is another big target point. Uh, The Holy Spirit is a huge target point for the devil. And so many of us, we hear these terms and oftentimes we get a little squeamish and uncomfortable, not because they're bad terms, they're God's terms, but the devil has misused them. And so the people that we associate with that misuse, we sort of want to back away from. And that's very common with grace. Grace is one of those words that sounds like it's cheapening the gospel. It's like when people start talking about grace, you just sort of feel that they're like up to no good because they're like trying to excuse away the righteousness of God and the holiness of God. They're saying we can live whichever way we want. That isn't what the Bible teaches about grace. However, that is a common message today about grace. And so there is a distortion in our modern Christianity to this idea and it's interesting because in the book of Jude, it actually talks about this. It talks about, which is weird, way back 2,000 years ago, the distortion that we have today, which means it was also a distortion back then. The devil's been up to this no good uh, since the beginning. This idea of grace is debuted at a very deep and profound way at the cross. So up into the cross, you have the Old Testament, and it has the word grace, in the Old Testament, it's the word chen, and what it's talking about is this, it's a foreshadow. Every time it's used, it's always talking about the coming Messiah, and it's talking about this one that we are undeserving of, this one who is an unmerited favor upon us, and so when you ever hear in Sunday school the definition of grace being unmerited favor, well, it's accurate. It's just the Hebrew word, but when that Hebrew word is used, it's foreshadowing something. It's foreshadowing a person. The one we are undeserving of is the Christ, and it is an unmerited favor that he has bestowed upon us in his coming, in his life lived, in his death died, in his resurrection gained, and now in his seated position, he is the God of all grace, and he has given us himself. And so, in Jude, we see that this grace, this idea of grace that God is going to relate to us, is going to give to us, bestow upon us in the uh, new covenant of his blood, is a point of great attack for the devil. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, I know, huge word, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have certain men who creep in to the church, and I guess the church doesn't realize it, okay? That was, that's what it means by it's unaware. And these are ungodly men, which is a really strange statement, okay? That we have ungodly men that are creeping into the church to do what? They twist, they turn the grace of God as revealed in Scripture into something it is not. And the big word is lasciviousness. I know, it's just like, One of those words, if you're a little kid, there's a few of them in here, you're just like, whoa, too big of a word. And if you're an older uh, kid, uh, you're thinking, oh, no. Uh, And it's not just the younger kids, it's also us uh, adults. We have no idea what that is. So I'll give you at least some other translations which will help you. 
But beware the ungodly agenda of turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, which is the King James Version, into lewdness. That doesn't help much either, does it? In the New King James, this is probably the best one in the NIV as far as to explain what it is in our language today. It's a license for immorality. In other words, oh, I can do that because I have grace. Oh, I could sin because God will cover it. I have a free pass now because I am under grace. That is what ungodly men have crept into the church to twist the grace of God into. Isn't that interesting? That is the most common way that grace is even taught today. Uh, In the ESV, it's into sensuality. In the NASB, into licentiousness or a license to sin. And so that's actually the way I would probably describe it to you if you asked, what is licentiousness? Or, uh, yes, what is lasciviousness? I would say it is a license to sin in people's minds. It's they feel that they can do things, anything they want, because God is a God of all grace. But that isn't exactly what grace is. Grace is kindness. Grace is mercy. Grace is patience. It is but it is a form of love and it is a working of God that doesn't allow us to remain in sin or to continue in sin, but lifts us out of it because God loves us too much to allow us to remain in our bondage. So grace. Now, there's a lot of ways that we can define it, and I've defined it in many, many ways over the years, okay? So this is just a simple way of saying it because grace is an action, but it's not your action. It's God's action. And it's God's action on your behalf. It's God's action in a human body to accomplish something. And that's what he designs, what he desires. So God could say, here's my command for you. And it's called law. And he could say, try it. And you can't do it. But grace doesn't just give you something to do. It gives you God's agenda, but it also gives you the ability to do it. You see, that ability to do what God desires is grace. It is God working. And so when we say that we are saved by grace, we are saved by the fact that God came to this earth and did something for us. He worked on our behalf to save us. How are you saved? Well, I'm saved by that. Yeah, that's grace. Okay, was it kindness? Yes. Was it merciful? Yes. Was it loving? Uh Uh-huh. Was it unmerited? You bet. In other words, it is all those things, but it is still God doing something for us. And outside of grace, we cannot be saved. The law cannot save us. The law can only state how we ought to live, and it shows that we need grace. And so grace is what God has done for us. So here's just my simple definition for it. God did it. So in the past, he has worked. And at that cross, he gave up his life and he extended grace to us. He gave us the working that we could not do. We are not saved by our works, we're saved by his works. And when he went to that cross, he bore the burden of our sin for us. He did the work. So God did it. God does it, and God will always do it. You see, you're not just saved by grace from 2,000 years ago, something that he did, but you're still saved by grace. God must do it still in you, and that's the concept of God does it. Present tense, it's an incredible thought. 
So in Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are you saved through faith. Now, if I were to ask you, how are you saved? Okay, now, with that scripture on the screen, you're going to say, well, by grace through faith. And you'd be accurate. But if we weren't staring at that scripture and I just caught you off guard and I said, by the way, how are you saved? You'd say, by Jesus Christ and what he did for me. Uh-huh, that's grace. You see, they're synonymous with each other. You can wrap them together and they're the same thing. They're not going to contradict each other. So you are saved by Jesus Christ through faith. You see that? You could replace out grace right there, but it's very specific. You are saved by what Christ did for you, by believing in it. Okay, that's, that's, still, that's a constant message throughout the New Testament. There's no contradiction there. In other words, that word grace is synonymous with something. It's a, it's a symbol and a, a holder for that whole concept of God who loved us so much that he came to this earth and did the work for us. Yeah, that's what saves us. See, God is a God of all grace. He has been moved this direction from before the foundations of the world. This is who he is. He is a God of all grace. And so when he sees someone in need, he is inclined towards their benefit and help and salvation. This is who he is. So when I say God did it, God does it, and God will always do it, most of us understand God did it, okay, because we're Christians. We know that, yes, he did. I believe. I believe that he died on the cross. He was buried, and he rose again on the third day. I believe it. That's good. However, we also believe, and he will do it in the future. He'll come in the clouds and his feet will stand upon the Mount of Olives. It'll divide in half. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord of the glory of God the Father. I believe it. So we believe the past and we oftentimes will believe the future. But it's the present that we oftentimes fail to recognize that the same God who did it, the same God who will do it, does it. He still does it today. That's going to be an important concept I want to bring out today. So we're going to call this the small S that is often missing in most of our lives. Because when we talk about salvation and we say that God saves us, well, what does that mean? Well, by grace, through faith, we have been saved. So we usually think of a big, huge, capital S, salvation. So, which is important. You need to recognize that the saving from the judgment to come, I'm saved from hellfire. I'm saved from the penalty of sin. Well, you're right. However, there's a lowercase s too. And that is, what about your temptation today to lie? What about your temptation today to steal? What about your temptation today to lust? What about your temptation today, you fill in the blank, to, in other words, we live in a hostile, fallen world and we need to be saved. But not in the big S. We've believed in Jesus. So yes, we are clothed in Christ. We've been brought into his kingdom, into his throne room of grace. We've been seated in heavenly places. But now we have to live this out. How do we expect to do it? You see, the key to Christianity isn't that you're just the clothing of Christ, or that Christ, I'm sorry, Christ becomes your clothing, and you are in Christ, but that Christ actually enters you. And the Holy Spirit moves into this body of yours. By the way, that's grace. In other words, the way that you're supposed to live your life is by his working. God intends to move in. He desires to make this his home. Do you not know that you're the temple of the Holy Spirit? Know you not, says Paul. 
I don't know that we do. I think that's a good question. Do we know that? Do we understand that we are the chosen house, the real estate property that God has selected and said, I bought that, I'd like to build a house right there. I'd like to move in. So we have a big S and small S. The big S is what many of us are familiar with, okay? When we're sharing the gospel with people, when we're giving them an understanding of Christianity, oftentimes we emphasize big S. It's not bad, it's important. And that is rescue from the coming judgment. And so, remember, you are saved by grace through faith. So imagine we take that statement in Ephesians 2.8 and we replace it with this idea, you are saved from the coming judgment through believing that he did it. So how are you saved? By knowing that that cross and his death that was died and the burden that he carried, the curse that he became, the wrath that he bore, that was on your behalf. And that when he died, your old life was crucified. And that when he was buried, you were buried in him and with him. And when he rose again, you rose to newness of life. You see, you are identifying in his work. And so as a result, you are saved by believing that he did it, past tense. All right? So that's big S salvation. Now here's small s salvation. The S is pretty small up there. You know, it's like in between small and salvation. You'll see a little S up there. And this is where we live right now. Like right now, you need salvation. Not from the coming judgment, but from the vulnerabilities that wage against you today, the, the attacks, the temptations, the challenges. I, I don't know about you. I mean, I've only lived in one human body, so I can only speak from what I've experienced. I just have a hunch after reading scripture and talking with tens of thousands of people about it that we all sort of face the same challenges. We all are in the midst of a battle, and there is an enemy who wants to compromise us, who wants to destroy us, who is seeking to devour us. And as a result, we need grace. We need to be saved in every situation. When that voice comes in and says, hey, do this. Well, whatever the do this is, we need to be able to, when it's the voice of the devil, say no. We need to resist the evil one. Well, how do you do that? In and of yourself, you don't have the capacity to stand against the powers of sin. It's greater than you. It's like a wolf pack against a sheep. If you were to vote, are you going to vote for the wolf pack or the sheep to win? You're going to vote for the wolf pack because you're smart. In the kingdom of heaven, God equips the sheep to overcome the wolf pack. But it's by grace. It's not by the power of the sheep. It's by the power of God in the sheep. So this is rescue in the moment-by-moment battle while here on earth. You need rescue every moment of every day. So what is that? Well, that's grace. You are saved in the moment-by-moment battle while here on earth through believing that he does it. Present tense. You don't just believe that he did it or that he will do it in the future. You believe that he does it. Oh boy, that's huge. That's huge in your Christian walk. You need to know that God is a present tense right now God. So listen to Jesus speaking in John 14. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me. Listen to this. He does the works. Now, we're talking about Jesus here. If there was any man that ever lived that could do the works on his own, it would be Jesus. 
And yet Jesus himself testifies to the fact that he didn't do it himself. God did it in and through him. You can say, well, he was God. Uh -huh. He was God showing us how a man ought to live. A man is meant to live by grace. This is how a man is supposed to be fueled and enabled. Jesus continues, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also. So the same works that the Father was doing in him, Jesus says, anyone that believes on me, these same works the Father is doing in me will be done in him. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Why is that gonna make a difference if he goes unto his Father? Because he's gonna give us the Holy Spirit to move inside of us in the same way that Jesus did the works of God. We are meant to do the works of Jesus. And that's how we do them as Christians. So the invisible hand, which is the name of this uh, little message, and my subtitle of this is Built to Do It All. I was doing a, a study on hands, and I was just thinking through, I was writing this huge list of things that a hand is able to do. I mean, it's just do it. I mean, it's just incredible. It can scratch, it can pinch, it can tickle. I mean, there's all sorts of things a hand can do, right? I mean, just the list goes on and on. This is an incredible device. And what's interesting is God says that he saves us by the power of his right hand. <laughs> so it's just a fascinating statement. And so one of the illustrations that I've used for years of, of teaching grace is to basically introduce you to an invisible hand. So if this hand of mine was invisible right now and it waved, would you see it? No, you wouldn't. What if it uh, pointed at you? Yeah, you. You wouldn't see it you'd be totally oblivious to the fact that the almighty right hand of God was pointing at you, right? I mean, that, what if it beckoned you and says, hey, you, come to me. You'd totally miss it. You see, God is described as invisible. It says no man has seen him at any time, which is a really strange statement because some of us immediately go, wait a minute, I could have sworn that, and you'd be right, but Jesus has revealed him. In other words, the invisible has been revealed through someone, through the Son. And so we're going to look at something in addition to the invisible hand, and that is the work glove. The work glove is designed in the image of the invisible. And so, and it is amazing, but when that glove yields to the hand, and the hand moves inside of it, suddenly, now watch this. Okay, there's a glove on this hand now. Now imagine that the hand waves. What do you see? You see a wave, and you're like, something's waving at me. Something's waving at me. What if it points at you? Like, oh, what, not me? And then what if it beckons you? You actually see it. What was the change? What happened that was different? Well, a glove that was made in the image of that hand submitted to that invisible hand, and as a result revealed what the invisible wanted to convey. God has a message for us, but he knows that we can't hear it in and of ourselves. We live in a different realm than him. We are fallen from him. Sin is a barrier between us, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, his son perfectly rests upon him, perfectly reveals him, and when you see the son, you see the father. When you see the son's movements, you see the Father's movements. When you see the Son wave, it's the Father waving. When you see the Son point, it's the Father pointing. When you see the Son beckon you, 
It's the Father beckoning you. Isn't that an amazing thought? So the work glove, built to reveal the invisible hand that does it all. It's still the invisible hand that does it all, but the glove is meant to reveal the invisible hand that does it all. See, what I'm just giving you a hint at is the fact that you have been created as work gloves. You see, we were designed as gloves in the image of the invisible to perfectly reveal in this natural realm the invisible attributes of God so that when people would see us, they would see God. They would behold his glory in and through us. I mean, that's like astounding. It really is. But that's the pattern. The problem is we rejected the hand. And now we're these pathetic gloves laying on the ground, flopping around. And then God gives us a command to reveal what only the invisible hand can. And we're like trying our best. But a glove apart from a hand, let's just all agree, guys, is pathetic. Okay, so let's, let's give the illustration of a glove here. Okay, we're holding a glove. Let's give it a command. All right, Reese, how about we say, uh, pull a weed, okay? So we're gonna tell the glove to pull a weed. Let's see how well it does, because pulling a weed isn't that hard, right? Uh, Reese pulled some weeds with me yesterday. And so, okay, pull a weed. Let it go. What's it gonna do? It's going to flop to the ground. You see, a glove outside of this invisible hand is unable to do even the most simple tasks because it needs a hand inside of it to perform them. And this is the same with us. What the law does is it gives us the commands to prove to us that we're missing something. The law shows us our need for, brace yourselves guys, grace. That invisible hand is grace. It's the God of all grace. And so what Jesus Christ has done is he's made a way for us to return into proper union where that invisible hand can once again enter us and move, live and move and have his being inside of us so that now our lives could once again reflect his glory. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. He's like, I'm a work glove, guys. But what he sees the Father do, for whatsoever things he does, these also does the, these also does the Son likewise. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Hey guys, I'm a work glove, says Jesus. He was God, but God who humbled himself to behave as a work glove. That's an extraordinary thought. I do nothing of myself, but as my Father has taught me, I speak these things. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the work. The hand that dwells in me, he does it all. You see that? Glove impotence. Impotence is a big word. Sorry about that. It just means powerlessness. You, you, a glove can't do anything of itself, okay? Just as I just showed you. It's, it's pathetic. That's the way we are. Apart from God, apart from the invisible hand, apart from grace, we can do nothing. That's what it says in Scripture. John 15, 5. Without me, you can do nothing. That's a pretty extreme statement. Without me, you can do nothing. Well, you can flop on the ground. There's various things humans can do. They have a whole Olympic Games to show what men and women can do outside of God, right? So I'm not going to say that this is incorrect. I'm just saying it's talking about you can do nothing of eternal significance. You can do nothing that the invisible hand intends to do in your life. There's things that the human body can do outside of God, but there's things it cannot. It cannot do what God has commanded us to do. 
So I'm gonna do an expanded edition of that scripture. I'm gonna say, without the invisible hand in you, you can do nothing. Now, I'm gonna give you another one, and this is gonna tie what we're talking about together in grace. Without grace, you can do nothing. In other words, could you imagine not having the grace of God, being under law? You know, pitiful you must feel under law without the power to do anything? Yeah, it's a heavy weight, it's called condemnation. You see, we are not designed to be under law. The law is a tutor, that's all it is, to show us our need of the Savior, to show us our need of the invisible hand, to show us our need of grace. The power of grace revealed. So I'm gonna go through this. Like I said, the message, the power to do it, goes a lot deeper into this. There's so many scriptures that just bring this out but it is so beautiful to show not just that Jesus lived by grace, not just that Jesus was a house in which, or a glove in which the hand uh, found its, its activity in its life, but that we are called to be that. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, says Paul. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So Paul is laboring more abundantly than them all. But it wasn't him laboring. It was the grace of God laboring. Isn't that just an extraordinary thought? It's like when we think about doing Christian work, we're like, I want to be like Paul the Apostle. Okay, you want to be like Paul the Apostle? You need to recognize that it's Paul labored more abundantly than everyone else. He was a hard-working guy, but it wasn't him working. It was God working. Well, how does that work? I just taught you how it works. You see, you are a work glove. And when you humble yourself and say, God, I'm a work glove full of a whole bunch of nonsense. There's a whole bunch of selfishness inside of me. And so as a result, there's no room for the hand to even get in. It's like stuffed full of toilet paper. Okay, a whole toilet paper on, on the top of it says self. And then another piece, of it says self. It's all a bunch of self, and it's a bunch of nonsense that's packed inside of us, and what is it hindering? It's hindering our life from functioning. So what we need to do is give all of it up and let go of self and empty ourselves. Empty ourselves as gloves so that the hand can move in, and the hand can begin to express what he desires in and through us. It's a little scary at first. You're like, what's he gonna do with me? Well, it's gonna be good. It's going to be to his glory. Everything he does is motivated by love. And so you could trust that. You see, God is going to take us forward into uncomfortable territory because he's a good father. And he will train our souls even through difficulty. And so you have to trust him and you have to know that his ways are best. But when you do that, then suddenly he can move in you. And when he moves, what do you do as a glove? You move. And what does the world see? When God wants to wave at the world, he can use you. And you suddenly are waving. You're waving. Have you ever had it where you're just walking through uh, a grocery store or a Starbucks or something and suddenly you just have a burden for someone? You just notice them. Don't ever take that lightly. The fact that someone stands out to you. You know how many people are in this world? And the fact that one of of those people in this wide world stands out to you? Never take that lightly as a Christian. Take it seriously. It doesn't mean you're supposed to talk with them, but it might. 
In other words, it might mean that you just say a quick prayer for them, but you notice them because God notices them. It's like you're carrying around God. Does it surprise you that God has interest in those around you? And so as a result, when he waves, you find yourself waving. When he points, you. You find yourself going, you. And when he beckons and he says, come to me, you find yourself going, Jesus really wants you to come to him. You see, this is how we function as Christians. It's the life of grace. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. So how are you going to abound to every good work? Well, you need all that grace. You see, this is how we do the working. It's not us doing it. It's him doing it in us. Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace. And by this grace, that's what it means whereby, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. So how are you going to serve God acceptably? How are you going to do this thing called Christianity? Service unto God. Well, it says right there, let us have grace. Whereby we may serve God acceptably. You see, you can't serve God acceptably without it. But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. This list is extraordinary. So for those of us that have a weak view of grace, it's just a big hug of God, he overlooks all sin. It's like the grace of God is the muscle of God, the action of God working on our behalf to rescue us. So it says... Look at this, it makes you perfect. It establishes you. It strengthens you. And it settles you. Boy, I, I want more of that. Yeah, you want the grace of God. The throne room of grace is open to us. Come boldly. Come boldly into the throne room of grace where you may receive mercy and grace for help in time of need. Boy. That's like all day long every day, isn't it? That's right. That's why we live there. All right. So guys, that's as far as I'm going to be able to take our grace study today. So I'm going to move into what we could call the key exercise of the week. And you'll notice, for those of you that have been through now 11 of these, I've always finished with the same thing, which is the importance of remembering the Holy Spirit. And I didn't have the slide for it, but I do think it's sort of the obvious. That's exactly what I just taught you right there. The Holy Spirit is the working of grace in us. When the Holy Spirit is living in us, that's like the invisible hand. It's God in us, working. And so, as a result, the importance of the Holy Spirit in Christianity is of the utmost importance because you could be a glove that is made right and emptied of self. Well, good, but are you filled with life? We need the life of Jesus Christ in us. It is imperative and so if there is ever any question or pause in you, if I were to say, is the Holy Spirit living in you? You should know the answer to that question. You see, there is no hindrance. There's no slap on the back of the wrist as a Christian. If you were to come to God and go, God, I really desire the Holy Spirit. So go, hey, well, you clean up your act before you ask for that. You see, Jesus, when we come unto him, cleans up our act, if you want to say it that way. He clothes us in righteousness. And as a result, because he crucifies the first man, the death of the cross, he frees us up to, be made, to enter into covenant with a new man. 
with our new bridegroom, Christ Jesus. Instead of death, it's now life that we can be wed to. And in that process, we are given access to all of life. We are given access to the Holy Spirit. Even legally, we have access via the name of Jesus. And Jesus himself says, ask the Father. Ask the Father who will give you the Holy Spirit. He will not say no. He will not hold him back. It is his delight. It is his desire. And just as much as he gave you salvation when you prayed and asked for it, he'll give you the Holy Spirit. And when you have the Holy Spirit, suddenly you can't live the way you used to live. You can't just keep sinning because you're miserable in it, because you're convicted of it, because now God lives inside of you. And as a result, you feel a burden for, for things that you didn't feel before. You're disturbed by things you weren't disturbed by before. You care about others. You know the necessity of prayer. You know the necessity of speaking truth. These are things that are stirring within you because the Holy Spirit has moved in. The hand has moved into the glove. And he's beginning to loosen up that glove, which is a little stiff at first. You ever notice that? It's like your glove has been sitting in some kind of gluish substance. It's like... And then God moves in and he's like, starts to warm it up on the inside. And you're like, uh-oh, I see where God's going with this. He's going to start getting me to do all sorts. He's going to get me waving, you know, pointing and beckoning. Oh, no. No, it's good. It's good. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's called Christianity. So our key exercise for the week, fasting. It sounds so serious after that message, Fasting. Uh, every, every one of these, this is the 11th discipline I've given. But in the Christian life, there's certain things that when you're first taking steps forward, it's important to be aware of them and to learn to exercise different dimensions of your life. The word fasting gets a lot of uh, odd interpretations uh, in our lives. And typically what most people would understand by fasting is not eating food. And whereas that is a part of it, it just means refraining from certain earthly things so that you could find dependence on Christ. And so as a result, just like a seventh day, on the seventh day he rested, it was a fast from work. As a result, it is a statement when we rest, we are actually making a statement of faith that we trust our God. So when they would collect uh, manna on Saturday, manna would always go bad, right, after 24 hours. And so when they would collect double manna uh, and it would not rot, the one day of the week it wouldn't rot, it was a statement of faith. That's, sim- that's a symbol of that concept of fasting where, God, I'm going to deliberately choose not to do this, which will weaken me. It will weaken me in this natural realm, but it strengthens me in faith. And that's why you notice in, in extreme circumstances, a lot of people will call a fast. They will declare a fast. They'll personally just choose to fast because they're making a statement of faith saying, God, I am dependent upon you and I'll refrain from the things of this earth that would make me strong and become all the more dependent upon you. And that's why food is an incredible statement for that because that's about the most clear thing to our human bodies that gives us strength every day. And so when we deliberately choose to not eat, we are choosing physical weakness in exchange of saying, God, I believe that you are my strength and I am willing to be physically weak so that you could be spiritually strong in and through me. So that's the principle of fasting. Fasting is an entire study all of its own, but it's an important concept. In Isaiah 58, 
God is going to refer to fasting as giving up self-interest and focusing on the needs of others. It's not an interesting statement. It's called the, the chosen fast. And so a lot, of, a lot of Jews obviously thought it was about being miserable and, oh, I'm fasting and, you know, putting sackcloth and ash uh, on them. However, it was turning outward and saying the poor, the least, the, the needy, and saying, I'm going to give up my agenda of taking care of me and I'm going to take care of someone else. And in so doing, God says, that's the fast I've chosen. And so in all of the giving up side of life, most of us as Christians, we have a very negative concept of the giving up side of Christianity. It's like, why, did, why does God ask for so much? Let's, let's get something clear here. Jesus Christ was given for us. The greatest, most extraordinary gift that could ever be given was given for us. God has given everything to us. And when we believe in him, he gives all of his kingdom to us. Everything. And by the way, God has a lot. We have diddly squat. Okay, that means very, very little. It is nonsense to hold on to our little nothing. And God says, could you give that up to me? We're like, God, you're asking for all I have. Okay, now who's getting the raw end of the deal? God's asking for your worthless pebbles and he wants to give you all of his kingdom. Who gets the bad deal? As far as I'm concerned, if you look at it on paper, God gets ripped off. He gets your pebbles and you get all of his treasure. And you're concerned about the fact that God's asking for your pebbles. You follow me? The devil's always going to talk about your pebbles and what you need to give up. However, it's pebbles. So when God asks you to let go, just know he's not asking you to let go so he can make you miserable. He's asking you to let go so that he can make you rich in spiritual life. You see, God has something better than what the world can offer. And so when you let go of the things of this earth, God makes you wealthy in the kingdom of heaven. And he knows what he's doing. He's the one that created all this. And so if we would trust him, which is what fasting is, we would find an abundance of life. Father, I ask that you would lead each one of us today, that we would yield afresh to you to allow that hand to move in and to animate us, to warm us from the inside out. Lord, that we would be cleansed from the inside out, that the Holy Spirit would do his sanctifying work and that we'd be malleable and ready to wave and to point and to beckon, that we would be in agreement with God, that you would do the work, Lord Jesus, that we would learn how to allow the Holy Spirit to move within us. Lord, we love you. It's in the precious name of Jesus that we pray this. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. 
We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.